0: I'm going to get to Galatians chapter 2 in just a, a minute or two. But I thought maybe um, it might be good to sort of give a little background uh, for those that have forgotten about it or don't know about it. it you know, a lot of this is about the um, a group called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were basically Christian Jews who attempted to um, impose the Jewish way of life on the Gentile Christians. And the issue concerning Paul in all of this is not simply whether or not a person follows the Jewish way of life, but whether you think that salvation can be attained by doing this. You know, in the early days of Christianity, practically all the Christians were Jews because they were the majority of them were in Jerusalem and the confines around there. By the time you get to Antioch, it doesn't take long before that becomes much more the center of um, Christianity, more so than Jerusalem, and all of these people in Antioch are Gentiles for the most part. And so they're just not familiar with all the Jewish practices and ways of life and the rules and the sort of thing. So at this particular time, uh, Judaism had three separate steps that you, to become a Jew. Circumcision for the males, a ritual bath in water, and agreement to take on, on the yoke of the law. And taking on the yoke of the law meant obeying the 613 commands of the Mosaic law as interpreted by the rabbinic councils. So obviously that meant a whole lot and for a Gentile it was overwhelming. So following Jewish customs and tradition, and observing Jewish religious laws was a normal way of life for the Jewish Christians, whether or not they, ca- they were born Jews or where they converted to Judaism. For them, belief in Jesus as the Messiah of, of the Jewish expectations enhanced you becoming a Christian but it didn't replace the Jewish customs and the way of Jewish life. Christianity was not replace, was not regarded as a religion distinct from Judaism, but rather the truest form of Judaism. So these Jewish Christians had all been circumcised, and they also practiced all the uh, kosher dietary laws, all the rituals of uh, the rituals of purity and they worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem until it was destroyed in A.D. 70 and they had synagogues all over the Roman world away from Israel Christianity quickly like I said became dominated by Gentiles and they had no understanding or really ties or caring about so many of these Jewish traditions And you would have thought after the council in Jerusalem that um, they would have understood that it wasn't necessary to obey all these Jewish laws to be accepted. But that wasn't the case. These people of what was called the Circumcision Party determined that the laws of the Jews still applied. The major reason Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians was to combat the Judaizers who had come and invaded the Galatian area after Paul had left. And they had successfully turned a lot of the Christians back to believing that you had to obey Jewish laws. That salvation was available only to those that were circumcised and kept the Mosaic law. If we go back just for a moment into the first chapter of Galatians, Galatians 1.13, Paul talks about my former way of life or manner of life. And this is a phrase that he used to describe the way of life in Judaism as opposed to the Hellenistic or Greek way of life. Paul didn't put on one way of life in the morning and another way of life in the evening. One way of life with one group of people and another way of life With another group. And the best evidence of Paul's claim to have received the gospel by revelation from Jesus Christ is his conversion experience. Such a dramatic change in his life requires some kind of explanation. How could such a fierce and deadly opponent to Christianity all of a sudden become such a devoted proclaimer of the gospel? And Paul says the change came because of God's gracious revelation of his son to him, or in him. And we looked at Paul's life before his conversion last time, how he was a ravager of the church, desiring to destroy it. And again, he described his life in Judaism. Now, Paul never ceased to proclaim that he was a Jew, but he always said in Judaism, only when he was talking about his former way of life, The distinctive customs and way of life of the Jews was supremely important to Paul before his conversion. But after his conversion, they were of no importance. Everything changed. He said at the end of his letter to the Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision meant anything. What counts is a new creation. And no one but God could have changed Paul's mind and his behavior. And the difference between Paul and the Galatians that he's writing to, in this writing you see such a stark contrast. As a Jew, Paul had returned, or had turned, from his total devotion to a Jewish way of life to serve a risen Christ. As Gentiles... The Galatian believers are turning from their focus on Christ to a preoccupation with a distinctive Jewish way of life. No wonder Paul calls them, you foolish Galatians. If we look at the first ten verses of the second chapter of Galatians, it reads, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running, or had run, in vain. But not even Titus who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God knows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised or to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles and recognizing the grace that had been given to me James and Cephas and John who were reputed to be pillars gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that, he, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised they only ask us to remember the poor The very thing I was also eager to do. In chapter 1, Paul had talked about his relationship or the nature of his relationship with the original apostles in Jerusalem to show that he had been commissioned directly by God to preach the gospel and not by the apostles. He's worked independently from them. And now it was three years after his conversion, before his first visit to Jerusalem. And then he spent two weeks with Peter, and saw only James in addition. After that visit, he remained unknown to the churches in Judea, except for the good reports they had heard about his evangelistic work in the provinces of Syria and Cilicia. And now it's 11 years later, and Paul returns to Jerusalem. And it's true Paul got his gospel by direct revelation, but that doesn't mean that he wants to work in isolation from the rest of the church. He knows that unity of the church is necessary for his missionary work. So he worked hard to build this unity on the basis of the gospel. If we pay attention, you can see the steps that Paul took to build a unity First, he took a team with him. He takes Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas, his uh, Jewish name is Joseph, but he was a highly respected Jewish Christian. In the book of Acts, you can see that uh, the apostles gave him the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement because of his gift of encouraging the early church. In a religious. Originally, he was the only one willing to reach out to Paul after his conversion because everybody else in Jerusalem was afraid of it. So, one of Paul's team was an outstanding Jewish Christian with a reputation as a bridge builder between all the different factions of the church. And the other member of the team was Titus, a Greek Christian who was not circumcised. And by including Titus, Paul showed his conviction that it was not necessary for Greek Christians to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jews first to be Christians. Titus' presence forces the council to face this um, dilemma. They can't ignore it. They can't remain neutral about the issue. Accepting Titus means that the Gentiles were regarded as equal members of the church. And the second thing to notice is that Paul says the reason he went up to Jerusalem was because of a revelation. This is an example that he was taking his orders directly from God and not from the people. Neither the Jerusalem apostles or any other group summoned Paul to Jerusalem for cross examination. He went because God told him to go. And then Paul presented the message he preached for evaluation and discussion. Paul's message was from the Lord so he wasn't afraid. He wasn't thinking oh I've got to satisfy these people when he says in verse 2 for fear that I might be running or had run in vain he doesn't mean he has doubts about his mission and he needs the apostles assurance what he does do is recognize again the importance of unity what he does do is let them know that his calling and message could be hindered if there was division in the church He hoped for wholehearted support and that's what he got. For Paul, the truth of the gospel included the Gentiles and that meant the unity and equality of Gentile and Jewish believers in Christ. The truth was challenged by these false brothers who tried to get Titus to be circumcised but Paul stood firmly against them. These false brothers For these false brothers, what they wanted and what they uh, tried to get was a focus on race and not grace. Sort of sounds familiar, doesn't it, when you look at what happens today. Unity in the church can only be secure when there is no compromise of the essentials of the gospel. Paul recognized that the people he met with at the conference in Jerusalem were regarded as spiritual giants. He also knew that external appearances meant nothing. What was important was faithfulness to the gospel. The gospel is not judged by great leaders. Great leaders are judged by the gospel. Galatians is about freedom. Freedom. Freedom from the burden of the law. The burden of keeping the law in order to be justified, to be declared righteous. And these false brothers would bring Christians into bondage. They would lose their freedom in Christ. The bondage here are the rituals and the regulations of Judaism. Paul would not be, or excuse me, Paul would be able to return to the church in Galatia with proof that the Jerusalem Council was in agreement that keeping Jewish customs and rituals had no place in providing for one's salvation. There aren't two Gospels. One preached by Peter to the Jews and another Paul proclaims to the Gentiles. The Gospels got one author, and of course that's God. And he's at work in each of the ministries. With James, Peter, and John, or when they saw this, clearly that grace had been given to Paul, they extended the right hand of fellowship to him and to Barnabas. And this is a sign of agreement and friendship. The apostles only asked that the poor be remembered in Paul's ministry. And to that he was in hearty agreement. And many times in Scripture you can see Paul talking about taking up a collection to the saints. And most often it's to the saints in Jerusalem. And the reason for this is because of the great persecution of the church in Jerusalem. They're persecuted by the devout Jews. And because their businesses, their livelihood. Because of the persecution, often people, they wouldn't uh, go to their business. So they were destitute in many ways. And there was also ostracism from families and from the Jewish community. So the Christians were often in dire straits in Jerusalem. So often, that's why you remember the poor, and they're talking more about Jerusalem than any other place. The second section here just 11 through 14 in the second chapter of Galatians it says but when Cephas Peter came to Antioch I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for prior to the coming of certain men from James <coughs> he used to eat with the Gentiles but when they came he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you, com- that you compelled the Gentiles to live like the Jews? What you're looking at here is sort of like a, uh, a duel at dawn or a fight between who he- two heavyweight boxing champions. The scene is not in Jerusalem anymore. It's in the Syrian city of Antioch where Peter was visiting. This is a city that Paul and Barnabas had been primarily witnessing to Gentile believers, and Peter saw Jewish and Gentile Christians eating and living together on a regular basis. Knowing the vision of God, the vision that God had given him of the sheep coming down out of heaven with all kinds of animals, and not to call unclean anything God had cleansed, Peter joined them. And evidently Peter did this on some time because Mm -hmm. the tense of the verb implies that he did this on a regular basis. Then some uninfluential Jews arrived from Jerusalem claiming to be sent by James and they segregated themselves from the Gentiles. Jews at one table, Gentiles at another. And soon other Jews joined them followed by Peter and even Barnabas. previously when Peter had sat at the table with the Gentiles, it was a great encouragement to them because they, now they could see and felt like they were fully accepted by Jewish believers. But now under pressure, Peter separates himself and the division appears in the church. Peter didn't make just a mistake. He knew better but he couldn't withstand the pressure from the circumcision party. Theologian John Stott says, The same Peter who had denied the Lord for fear of a maidservant now denies him again for fear of the circumcision party. When Paul returned, and the reason I say returned, Scripture doesn't say that, but it's hard to believe that Paul was present because he would have never let it go on for any length of time if he'd been there. He intervened. And he did it publicly because the split took place publicly. And some people have criticized Paul for not rebuking Peter privately, but Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.20 that the sin of church elders should be a public matter so that others will witness and take warning. Sobering, isn't it? Paul himself had said he became all things to all men, to win some to Christ, in 1 Corinthians 9. So why was it wrong for Peter to follow the same principle of accommodation and adapting himself to the preferences of his home church in Jerusalem, which would have been Jews eating just with Jews? For Paul, Peter's action was not accommodation for the sake of the gospel. It was compromise of the essential truth of the gospel. Paul was willing to confront Peter with the inconsistency and hypocrisy of his actions. This was not a power struggle to see who was in control of the church. Peter's rebuke, excuse me, Paul's rebuke of Peter, was based on defending the gospel. Again, verse 14 says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you would compelled Gentiles to live like Jews when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Peter's conduct implied that there could be a superiority in some Christians based on race or tradition. It's not just enough to understand and accept the gospel as Peter did or even to defend it as he did in Jerusalem. A Christian is called also to practice the gospel consistently, allowing it to regulate all areas of his conduct. Sadly, we all fall pretty short of that. But that's what we're supposed to do, and that's what the gospel demands. The last six verses read 15 through 21. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified but if while seeking to be justified in Christ we ourselves have been also found sinners is Christ then a minister of sin may it never be For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself up for me? I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly for nothing. Jews by nature are those who had grown up with the law of Moses, the Old Testament testament covenant temple worship the promises of God Gentile sinners were those outside the Jewish faith and this was probably a derogatory derogatory phrase among all fighting Jews if you remember in a temptable little Jesus he'd been called a friend of sinners the issue is how is a man justified And the Judaizers taught that it was by works. Now, they would have said, it's not just by works. They would have believed it was by faith and works. But Paul saw through this claim. Because it's not ever correct to say that you believe in justification by faith, unless you mean by faith alone. Remember, justify means to declare righteous or innocent. And the opposite of to justify is to condemn or to pronounce guilty. In Christ, God declares all righteous who believe. He imputes divine righteousness to them. In effect, this means putting your back or turning your back on the possibility of being justified by works. Paul says in chapter 6 of Galatians, that good works should be evident in a Christian's life, but they contribute nothing to a person's justification. So any requirement for Gentiles to first become Jews in order to become Christians is a denial of the completeness, the sufficiency of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. The accusation from the Judaizers was that the Jewish Christians were eating with the Gentile Christians because of their common faith in Christ. Therefore, since this is true, their common faith in Christ had led them into sin of breaking Jewish purity laws. And if identification with Christ promoted unlawful identification with Gentiles, then, they argued, Christ promotes sin. Paul says, absolutely not. The accusers are see eating with Gentiles as being sinful because the law forbids it. Paul says eating with Gentiles Christians is not sinful because the gospel demands it. Withdrawing from eating with Gentile Christians is hypocrisy, a violation of the truth of the gospel. The law can no longer be used as the basis for judging the practice of Christians. The gospel has nothing to do whatsoever with human merit and the obedience to the law of Moses, but it is instead based on the life, truth, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul goes back to the Psalms, because Psalms 143 says, No man living is righteous. What did Paul mean by saying that he died to the law? He's not suggesting that the law is useless Because if you read Romans 8 or Romans 7, you can see how much he values the law. He means dying to sin. He had died to the law as a means of justification, of peace with God, of acceptance with God. He had died to self-righteousness that had come from knowing the letter of the law and not the Spirit of God. Death to the law is accomplished by identification with the death of Christ. In chapter 3, Paul explains that the law pronounced a curse on Christ as he hung on the cross. He's cursed because he takes all the sins of those that believe on him. The greatest sin-bearer in the history of the world. And so the, the verb used here is in the perfect sense pointing to the permanent condition of Christians in relation to the law. We remain dead to the law and fully punished and therefore the law can no longer condemn us. The result of dying to the law Is a new kind of life. It's a life. For God. Christ centered life. Christ in me. Grace says. There's no difference. All of sinners. Faith in Christ. Alone brings salvation. It's a free gift. It's all of grace. It's received through faith in Christ. Not by obedience to the law, this is the true gospel. Anything else is not. It's not hard to understand if if you pay attention to what Paul is saying. He's telling you what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. what the gospel requires and what is an affront to the gospel. How adding to the gospel is not the gospel because there's only one gospel. And it's clear that any additions separate you from the word of God, from the call of God, from the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand And to not see where self-righteousness accomplishes anything except causing us to believe in a different gospel. That the only gospel there is is the grace of God through salvation through Jesus. Plus nothing. Anything else is a damnable gospel that condemns and doesn't save. Lord, I pray that that would be clear in our hearts and clear in our minds and clear as we walk with you day by day. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.